Richard Davis is an economist at Bristol University and the author of Extreme Economies, What Life at the World's Margins Can Teach Us About Our Own Future. This is Richard Davis. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, great. Well, I'm here with Richard Davis. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. No problem. Great to be with you. Um, so I uh, came across you through a book that you had written called uh, Extreme Economies, uh, Lessons from the World's Limits. Um, and, th- and that title kind of sums up the idea uh, or, or approach uh, that you seem to have had in this book, where you're, you're, you, know, you talk about the lessons from the scientists of anatomy who look at the, the, the limits of the body to sort of uncover fundamental laws. Uh, and similarly, you were looking at the extremes of the world's economies um, to uncover some fundamental truths about economics. I, I'm curious, though, because you had to do a lot of traveling to make this book possible. I mean, you were going from Indonesia to Jordan to, uh, you know, parts of Africa, the Darien Gap. These, these are not easy places to get in and out of. And so I imagine you needed a strong motivation to take on a project like this. Uh, what were you hoping to learn? It's a, it's a big um, question. So I'll start with the, um, the kind of initial motivation, I guess, which was the initial kind of personal motivation, which was that I'd been working as an economist for um, 15 or so years. Um, and particularly I'd worked in like very traditional settings. Um, so the central bank, which uh, in the US is the Federal Reserve for us here in the UK, it's called the, the Bank of England. Um, uh, and also at our finance ministry, um, uh, the UK Treasury. And I'd worked through some periods of extreme volatility and big kind of economic mistakes, you would say. So uh, in the sense of of not understanding, not fully understanding how the underlying economy was working. And um, so we had the 2008 crash. And then in kind of 2015, 2016, and you saw this in the States as well, um, but particularly in the UK, you had this big sort of turn in feeling towards trade and openness um, uh, in the UK and this kind of surprising result in, in whether we should be a, a member of the EU or not. And so clearly I thought that w- we were missing some big um, parts of economics based on, on that sort of inability, uh, despite the best intentions, to kind of fully understand what was going on. So first point is kind of we're missing, we're missing things. The second part of the motivation is that, and I try to set this out in the book and I hope I convince you, is that we know that we're going to face some extreme tensions, some extreme difficulties um, over the next 10 to 20 years. Uh, these kind of slow moving but fundamental trends um, of aging so the the hyper age society the fact that we're moving to a, a very old age structure inequality again familiar in the uk and us but i think the the take of the book is slightly different i'm talking about inequality in some of the most exciting fastest growing emerging markets and the way that is leading to violence and to a rejection of the kind of capitalist Western approach, um, most notably in in Chile recently. 
Um, and then finally, technology, the whole, you know, are the robots going to take all the jobs uh, conversations? And so we know, and I, well, I argue that we know that we're going to face these three fundamental shifts and threats potentially to our economies. And at the same time, we also know that we're not fully understanding things because of our, our performance as economists and as analysts. And so that gives me the motivation to think that we need a new approach um, and the new or an additional approach, not a new approach, um, uh, because I'm not saying we should reject economics wholesale. I'm saying we should build on it. We should let it evolve. And the way we should build on it, in, in my view, is to learn precisely as you opened your question um, from the, the sciences. So people, you can debate endlessly whether economics is a science or not. I'm not particularly interested in that question. I think all areas of analysis, whether they be sciences or the arts, have, have interesting um, sort of methodologies, interesting ways of thinking. And one of them that we don't use in economics is to go to the very extremes. So we tend to like to get a large data set and think about the median consumer or the median US household wealth, whatever the question is. But if you look to the history of anatomy, if you look to the history of engineering is another one. Um, much more recently, since the book came out, I've obviously started to notice this theme. So elsewhere, I, I heard somebody talking about black holes and the, important, the importance of black holes for physicists is precise, precisely because they're the kind of ultimate extreme and they help you understand kind of the fabric of reality. And the point is that when you, the, the, the problem um, or the reason these things are not popular, I guess, is that is a sample selection size thing, which is that people like to get big data sets. But if you go to the most extreme place, or the most extreme event, you've only got one sort of data point. Um, uh, but I argue that there's a rich tradition across the sciences of doing that. And it doesn't matter if you've just got one data point, if the number of different angles, the, the amount of um, uh, information coming from that one point, that one, let's say not one data point, but one event, if the amount of data the amount of information coming from that one, one event is so rich, so detailed, so um, uh, unveiling and inspiring as to how things actually work, that approach is worth following. So that was the idea with the book, find nine places that are the most extreme examples of their kind that show us either resilience, its success or its failure, and then to think about these three challenges of the future and to try and get the information we need to face the next sort of um, uh, 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I'm so glad you made that point about data because I'm in the world of software engineering as part of my job. And so big data is this huge thing. And at the end of the day, it, all of this has to be interpreted. And so what's ultimately valuable is not you know, a bunch of data points sitting in a server somewhere or you know, in a record book. It's the interpretation. And if you can bring, you know, a really rich and meaningful interpretation out of a small subset of data, like when you went to Indonesia, for instance, and I think that's really applicable to coronavirus, where you have this disaster, a tsunami that wipes out the economy, and they can rebuild rather quickly um, from almost nothing. I mean, don't you feel like a, a case like that, did, did that get you thinking 
uh, when you, you saw sort of this V-shaped recovery, maybe it's complicated now, but initially, did, did that strike you as being, you know, like a, a cleaning agent, coronavirus? Um, yeah, there's a few few really important points there. The first one is this, this kind of fundamental question that we have about um, quantity and quality of data. You, you'll know it for sure, and I'm sure you'll um, uh, experience it even, even more than me, that sometimes people get very excited by data, right? Yeah. And you're constantly reading papers where they're like, oh, we tested our algorithm against X billion runs, you know, this many loops that, and so on. Um, and that can, be, that can be great, but it also can be completely devoid of value totally. um, if the data is not clean, if the data, similarly, if the data points are all very similar, you'll, I'm sure you have this problem when you're testing software, you, you need a big a difference to yeah. see if you get, you know, does the data change and give you a different result? If you can just do the same analysis over pretty much the same data, it's not telling you anything about the world. And so I really strongly um, reject this idea that a kind of, um, a different approach, which is to say, okay, I'm gonna think of one thing and it could be in economics, it could be anywhere, and try and get lots of different angles of data on that one, um, uh, that, that one um, place, that one um, example that you're trying to study. Uh, and so really think about it deeply from many, many different angles rather than the typical approach, which is like define my data, which could be an economic variable. It could be like a, a, a temperature. It could be number of days sunshine, something like that. And you basically let your analysis be defined by your ability to capture the data. So you get the same data on it on all the different places. I'm doing something completely different, which is to pick something and then try and get all different possible types of data. So talk to people about how the schools work, how does their diet work, how does their currency work, how does politics work, um, how does tradition work, um, uh, religion, folklore, like every single different angle I can get on a place to, to, to really fully understand it and I think that's a kind of fundamentally different from actually some of the stuff I do in my day job which is just to take so-called big data which is basically the same data point for lots and lots of different observations so um yeah and I think it's I think it's in this world of data we live in that that difference between um big and and rich I would call it is quite an quite an important one on Indonesia itself um and also the other, the other, the other th two chapters that make up the first um, part of the book, um, which are about the uh, Syrian refugee camp in, in northern Jordan, but also in the closer closer to you, I guess, um, uh, in the states, uh, down in Louisiana, in the the maximum security jails there. I did see um, this incredible resilience this incredible ability to to build back from almost nothing um, it stems from i think two things the first one is that i do think having having written the book and been to all, all, all these places and met people that human beings are kind of fundamentally um entrepreneurial and fundamentally 
will trade. Um, the most harsh economic environments you can find still, one of my concerns with the books was, was um, to give you a bit more picture of what it was like was, you know, when I go to these places, people are facing hardships that I have never even, will never even imagine, you know, they've, they've lost their homes, their businesses in, in, this, in the penitentiary, they lost their liberty. You know, are they really going to want to talk about economics and the economy and trade and so on? And I think I did something like 550 interviews and maybe 10 people said they didn't have much to say. Like, like almost everyone in almost every place had really interesting things to say about how the economy works. And that's because we're, we're all very different. And some people are good at one thing. Some people are good at something else. Some people have some kind of assets. Some people have some kind of, um, uh, some people have needs. And there are always these beneficial um, ways to trade within one another. And so that springs up very naturally in all these different places. There is this, and moving to, to finally answer your question, there is this, um, there is a literature, it's quite difficult. You have to be kind of very careful um, the way you kind of talk about it. Because um, of course you would never say that the tsunami event or the coronavirus is good, is a good thing. But there is, and you can look at different social sciences literature on this, there is this kind of perplexing phenomenon that when an, a, an extreme event happens afterwards, there is sometimes this kind of, healing or rebirth to a stronger um a stronger level and that can be both um the obvious one is is the, the more obvious one i don't think either of them are obvious but the the um the one that i think some people understand is is economically and that's because wherever we live in the world we're surrounded by um uh, machinery by uh, like this office here, the, the office you're sitting in, the buildings we're both in that are kind of old and have depreciated and being forced to rebuild. And that's a big problem. You have to get the financing, you have to do it and so on. But the result a few years down the line is often that you have a you have built back better, which is this common kind of catchphrase that, that, that does happen. But then much more deeply, um, you find that people, because there's this kind of common enemy because there's this common um, threat that they faced. You see this with natural disasters, you see it with war. Um, sometimes social uh, borderlines and social problems between genders, between religions and so on, actually heal slightly afterwards. So there is this, this cleansing effect. Again, you would never wish for these things to happen. They're, they're devastating events. But within those disasters, there are some interesting positives that happen. The question would be, could we try and make get those positives without having the initial hugely negative shock? The the point about social cohesion, I, I want to touch on because I feel like that's that's kind of huge. Um, and, and it gets to what you were speaking about earlier, where economists are often looking at like the median as opposed to an extreme or even um, uh, uh, just just trying to represent things in like an idealized state. You mentioned people debate over whether or not economics is a, a science and you're not interested in that question, but even comparing methodologies with like physics, 
where you can imagine a world without friction and more easily discover laws about gravity, say that way. Yeah. Um, it appears in economics, it's it, it, the parts that you can quote unquote idealize away seem to be really fundamental drivers of, of what is actually happening in an economy. So like the, as an example, um, those Glasgow tenement buildings that were, you know, a point of major social cohesion, neighbors knew each other, they helped each other out with like lotteries where, you know, someone was always like bound to win, everyone was bound to win at some point, um, and, and other, you know, forms of like mutual aid, etc. And they created new tenement buildings, and it totally broke apart the social cohesion, and seemed to be like a, a real devastator for that economy. Um, and, and, I mean, you know, way more overdoses than similarly like deindustrialized places um on the point of social cohesion is this something that economists missed um is it is it lost in in the data let's say yeah so in i mean it, a couple of ways to talk about that one in in first is to say that i think it's hugely hugely important and generally overlooked not just by economists by by um political scientists, but sort of everyone involved in public policy, I would say. And um, the reason for that, by the way, is this data point we discussed, which is that people do a kind of top-down analysis of, uh, I don't know, incomes or something in, in, and correlate that with the housing stock and then, then conclude that there's a problem with this area of housing stock and do very little to actually go and talk to people. So it's another, I guess, um, point um, about the, the, the collection of both the quantitative information, but actually going on the ground, your own feet on the ground to interview people, like old school journalism, uh, which I think is important. But to your, um, to, to your point on, on Glasgow, um, just to give reader, uh, listeners a, a, a very quick introduction why is it interesting it was it's interesting because it was about a hundred years ago the kind of um uh silicon valley or maybe silicon valley is now the wrong example for me to use i know everyone's going to texas now um but uh the austin let's say it was like the popular place to go so let's call it the austin texas um uh for the arts for engineering for technology basically um, you had people from France, from America, relocating there. And it was essentially all around the steam engine and shipping. And these were huge boom industries. And from that um, high, incredible high, it experienced this um, rapid, rapid decline. And it's a really important message for anybody across the world. that We are increasingly, as human beings, living in cities, Lots of cities have a core technology or a core industry at their heart. And what happens when that experiences a, a shock? What, one of the things that happened in Glasgow is people sought to, uh, for ways to help the city. And they thought that public, public housing was one of the answers. Again, this is a huge question across the UK and across the US. And essentially demonized or undermined this old form of um, housing, which was relatively low rise. Some of them, these tenements were in very bad conditions and were 
you know, rightly described as slums. Others weren't. Others were were um, really kind of um, uh, close knit, supportive, supportive places. And the problem, what they did actually, is they did they bulldozed most of them and they destroyed them. Um, and they built these house blocks on the on the outskirts of the city, which ended up being these focal points of opioid. In, in the Glaswegian situation, heroin, pure heroin um, addiction, and uh, very and, and, the, and the, the problems of early death that are, that are associated with that. Like more generally, what can we say about cohesion and economics, and should the two be analysed together? Um, the average um i said you shouldn't talk about average but the kind of the central viewpoint in economics and it, across the social sciences i think is um that this stuff social cohesion social capital is um a bit too hard to measure a bit too hard to quantify so let's let's not do it I think that's wrong, and I have an argument which I think is really simple and really unarguable to my fellow economists and to fellow social scientists, which is that everyone and, and policymakers, everyone in those um, those areas would agree that finance is is uh, a proper part of analysis, so like finance. Um, from the way money works to the way credit works to the way debts work um, uh, assets liabilities savings investments all that stuff is fundamental to economics it's also fundamental to policy making and it turns out that and um, you know Putnam uh, the Harvard-based scholar has shown this very clearly in the, in the 1980s and 90s with his analysis of how things worked in, in Italy is very clear that you show that social cohesion, these, let's say, woolly or, or sometimes opaque or hard to define notions of whether a society is cohesive or not, if you can get towards measuring them a little bit, you find out that they're very, very closely linked with the way finance works. And not official finance, but unofficial, um, let's say, gray market things like lending between neighbors, new forms of currency and formal forms of currency and all of these things clearly are there to support trade which is the, the fundamental aim of economics so my own view from having been to these places and talked to people about how trust means that you will lend your neighbor goods services money uh, and not knowing your neighbor means you won't do that it, I, I just think it's it's an open and shut case that you have to start including trust and, and, and other measures of cohesion if you want to do proper economic analysis if you don't you're missing a massive part of the story yeah and, and one of the things i really like about your approach in this book is what what we're talking about um that that sort of policy decision about housing for instance um a, a lot of the times when people talk about economics i hear it in very ideological terms like the sort of the, the classic lefty position of that would be, you know, oh, they're trying to gut public housing. But in fact, these people seem to be saying, hey, let's improve public housing. But it, they've made a poor choice, a poor planning decision. Um, maybe the classic right or libertarian perspective would be, you know, oh, public housing is 
government plan, it's never going to work. But in fact, it did work in advance. It, in other words, I guess what I'm getting at is, were you surprised at how much, um, whether or not an economy succeeded or failed, was based on on just uh, sort of like human error? Um, I I was, and I was surprised at that, and I. Um, it's one of the things, not necessarily just human error, but how much is based on, let's say, the unseen, the unanalyzed, um, which includes human action, human motivation, but also just includes, and this again gets back to one of the themes of, of, of data that we've been discussing, I guess, things that just aren't taken into account, they're simply not looked at. Um, and that's one of the things that that I really sort of took away from the book, which is that, okay, I guess my, um, or the project that was the book, my um, suspicion that we're missing a lot um, was the was right. Um, and a kind of um, one way to, to, to think about that, and I wrote, um, a short for the Financial Times, which I can send you, and we can add to the notes if interesting on this. Because yeah. I then started looking into this literature, and it's not it's not a massive one, but it's really interesting of how um, what we can say about how much of the economy we measure and how much we don't measure. And there are interesting ways you can do this. For example, you can do things like use satellite imagery to look over cities and towns and work out how much energy is being used in a country that sort of doesn't measure its, its economic activity very well. And then compare that to somewhere that like really um, focuses on, on measurement and compare the satellite imagery of those places and work out, well, hey, there seems to be a lot going on in this place, but, but the, the, the numbers are low. And there's some clever tricks like that you can use. Anyway, it turns out, I mean, I had, I don't know what picture I, I, I had, having had these very formal jobs in economics, but also having worked as a journalist um, at The Economist magazine. But again, that's quite a kind of, that's very mainstream. Right. I don't know what I would have said if you'd asked me before I got interested in this, you know, how much of the economy do we miss? I think I might have said like 10%, 20% or something. It turns out, and this is places like the International Monetary Fund, so, you know, robust analysis. It turns out that we're missing about half. And in some places, a lot more than half. So this, this informal economics that you see on the ground, that like if you go to Kinshasa, I mean, there it's like 90% in the Congo, there's the outside the, the national statistics. What you see on the street, people bartering, people using informal types of money, um, tokens instead of money, people doing like in Glasgow, these, um, these lotteries, which aren't really lotteries because somebody's always guaranteed to win and nobody takes a stake. It just means that every, every month during a year, um, one person in the neighborhood gets a boost of their income. Um, all of this stuff is like informal economics. It definitely um, should be taken into, into policymaking. And it's not a marginal thing. It's about half. It might be more than half. Yeah. So what we're missing by um, this sort of top-down, actually often driven now by big data um, approach versus sort of 
boots on the ground, going to talk to people, fundamentally understanding how their lives work is a huge, huge chunk. And so I was surprised by it, but now I've looked into it, I, I kind of shouldn't have been, I should have known that, that like we're, we're only measuring half the economy. Um, and so I think uh, as policymakers, um, as anybody interested in social affairs needs, needs to do a lot more work on that. And when you say we're only measuring half the economy, how, how is that quantified? Like in, in terms of like dollar output? Yeah, so that's quantified in terms of very formal measures of um, economic, economic activity, which of course themselves can be questioned, you know, but for example, GDP um, uh, or the number of businesses. So how many actual businesses are there? in terms of business registrations mm. versus how many businesses are, that we, forgetting about the paperwork, which you need to register a business, we would call a business. So like a couple of guys on a street operating a shoe shine, you know, a big queue of people going up, they're operating it, they're taking payments, that we would call that a business, um, but it might not be in the business statistics. So, so those are the differences that, that I'm talking about. Um, uh, yeah, and it turns out to be to be high, sometimes 30%, sometimes 40%, but often half, and in some cases, much more than half. It, does that mean if we ever go into a recession, we, we can rapidly start collecting these statistics and then, you know, double GDP overnight? Say, hey, you know, actually the economy is doing a lot better than we thought. Um, I, it's I, mostly I, big, but... Yeah, so... so. Sadly, I don't think um, I don't think it will, will work like that, and for two reasons. Um, but it is an important question um, uh, for a kind of a kind of third related reason. The the reason I don't think we can sort of quickly rely on the informal that on the hidden economy is precisely that because it's informal, it's hidden, and often it is hidden and informal on purpose to avoid the state. So that's another kind of important thing, which I think is less, I mean, clearly there are some markets, let's say illicit drug markets, illicit weapons markets and so on, and that will, will exist in, in countries like the, the UK and US. Um, they'll be like this, but, but you know, we have to remember that we live in a very particular type of country, which is essentially a liberal Western democracy. And most people, or many people across the world, don't live uh, in, in that situation. Uh, and I mean, the Kinshasa, the Kinshasa chapter in the book is the most striking example of this, of people actively trying to hide their economic activity from the state because they don't trust the state. So it's not that you can suddenly turn a light on and say, hey, everyone, all those hidden businesses, can we tax you now? Because the whole reason they're hidden is that they don't want to be, they don't want to be taxed. That's the um, first, first reason. Second reason um, that I think it's difficult to kind of utilize this stuff straight away is that um, kind of downturns are going to be correlated so if the official gdp is down and unemployment is high um it's probably the case that that feeds through to uh the uh, the unofficial i mean it's certainly the case because the people you see walking along the street let's say this example of the informal shoeshine place uh, in kinshasa 
the, the people getting the pay are from the official economy, government workers and so on, and that feeds through to the unofficial. So the two, two are completely interlinked. The reason I think it's a, a good um, question, although it has a kernel of a really important question of like what, how to deal, deal with recessions, is that um, my perspective from, from doing the book is that this informal, self-built, um, let's say much more local, hyper-local often, um, economy is the thing that turns out to be the ultimate source of resilience when you face a really extreme event. And I'm not talking about, like at the moment, both in the US and UK, we've got, are we going into recession? Um, you know, inflation's up, uh, output's flagging, a lot of, lot of talk about recession. And it could potentially be quite bad. I'm, I'm not down saying that at all. But what I'm talking about is really big kind of cliff edge COVID type scenario or worse, like a COVID where we had to have really deep and much stronger lockdown, let's say for a whole year. Um, uh, and what, you know, what, what comes to the fore then and what you find is what comes to the fore is all the hidden stuff. It's all the people who were hiding. It's all the like local businesses. It's the local swap shops, thrift stores, clubs, all of that stuff. Um, turns out to be very, very important in, in resilience. And I saw that all over the all over the world. So the fact that we, final point to conclude, the, the fact that we don't measure it, is that a problem? I do think it's a problem because things you don't measure, the government doesn't care about in the steps that it takes. And for that reason, you can accidentally, and I think I believe this is what happened in the city of Glasgow, the UK's worst economic mistake in the past hundred years as i've argued i think they accidentally destroyed it um yeah because because they didn't know it was there yeah the the whole interaction between uh, the government and markets and, and uh it, it doesn't appear like there's a simple neat solution of like oh well governments should just stay out of markets and then they'll be free and they'll thrive you know you you point to examples like the Darien gap where you have people who want to cross it, who are would be willing to pay money, and there are people who have the knowledge that could help you cross this gap, but for some reason, these two things just can't connect. And I don't know a good solution to make them connect, but they are being sort of left alone to, you know, spontaneously, a market is not spontaneously being created. And I'm curious if that's something that uh, you, you found unusual or is that something that, you know, is typical? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, um, I'm glad you asked this question because the, I don't want the book or, um, or the kind of optimistic parts, I guess, of the book, which are these, these examples we've already discussed of places that are kind of, against all odds you know against all odds within a hyper constrained us and penitentiary system or within a um uh, a refugee camp where people have lost everything within those places there are amazing informal economies um that have sprung up and it's just kind of incredibly kind of optimistic as to how markets can help people 
But similarly, um, Darian is a great example of two, two opposite ends of the scale problem. One is places where markets have sprung up, but they are fundamentally damaging. And that's in the Darian gap is the, is the market for hardwood, which again, and this is another example of like, you know, the importance of doing old fashioned, traveling to places, um, journalism uh, and investigative work if you can, because the headline statistics are very, very different to what you, what you see on the ground. And there's basically this over trading uh, going on, which is destroying year by year, this pristine, um, pristine rainforest. So you can have markets that do spring up and are unregulated and but are damaging. And then you can have these places where um, it would be fantastic if there was a market, like some of them are problematic, the, let, let's be clear. Um, the market for helping people cross the Darien Gap is problematic because it's about um, breaking laws, countries, kind of immigration laws. But what's going on at the moment is people are just going through there without any guides and just dying uh, at, uh, on on the way. Um, I didn't myself like actually actually see any people, but I met two or three groups who had had who had lost members and had, had seen people along the way. So um, that had lost their lives. So this is definitely happening. Um, what are the solutions? I think in the, again, the, the main thing is to realize um, is to, I think, have a, have a clearer set of principles on markets. First one is the one you said is like, there's no one size fits all. Okay, let's just take that. We, we have examples of bad markets and of missing markets. So, you know, even the hardest purist has to recognize that. I think second point is that actually that the market purist, the, the you know the Chicago school you might call it, is a lot of the time, maybe most I don't know I wouldn't want to quantify but a lot of the time, the market is the simplest, best, fastest way to solve things. Yeah, and definitely saw that in these extreme kind of refugee um, uh, scenarios, and people have recognised this. So. Um, aid and that's good people are recognizing that that now to give aid maybe one of the things you should do in, instead of like going in and very closely monitoring exactly what this family should be allowed to buy and that family should be allowed to buy and giving them a quota of these things um people have tried just giving people money and letting them make their own decisions so their buying power goes up and then traders all around have the incentive to come in yeah. that, that's an example i think of this recognizing that the market will um, does work as a kind of allocation mechanism, we would say it more formally as economists, like a way of getting goods to the people that need them. So fundamentally, they most often work, um, but there are some, and, and it's particularly with things, and we know the things that it's around, right? It's around health, it's around education, it's around the environment, where pure... Um, if le left uh, untouched, pure um, market forces can lead to an overtrading that has uh, some negative effect, uh, which is not captured by those involved in the market. And actually, we would, you know, 
we would we would want to we would want to prevent that. Um, so those are markets that need to be regulated. Missing markets is a is a I, I, I guess a, a newer and more interesting one, and I think the information has a big role to play here. So the reason that the, the, the people weren't trading and the fundamental re- in reason in the Darien Gap is that they, they only meet each other once. So you have no reputation. You have no sense in which it, it's costly to you to um, to you to help them because then your, your reputation will grow, your standing will grow, your um, both like morally but also economically you'll feel uh, as a kind of better and higher standing person none of that's there in these like one shot single interaction games yeah. and so you have these incentives to trick people and to try and get most money out of them um, and I guess one solution to that kind of scenario which will be happening all over the world is information technology type systems you know like recommender systems where we can, even though we don't know each other, we can build up reputation online from other people kind of reviewing us and, and how we've behaved. So that's one potential solution to, to missing markets. I'm sure there are many others. Are you, are you suggesting a social credit system? Mm. I wouldn't necessarily go, go that far, but I like, and that's like, yeah, that, that, that's a prime example I presume you're uh, you're alluding to to the China system here. Yeah, um, that's a prime example. Just jumping back one topic of why um, a really powerful state, like by virtue of being powerful and doing all the analysis, because it's never going to be perfect, right? He, I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic in human beings, and I think that, that, that they're going to be able to find ways around it. By virtue of saying we're going to watch everything you do, automatically you're going to create a larger hidden area, right? Because people immediately have an incentive to not to hide, um, to, to hide from that. So, so that exact policy, I think, is in some sense, from the stuff I've seen across the world, fundamentally um, inconsistent. Even if you if you like it or loathe it, it's that's one question. But like, will it work? I think it's in some sense fundamentally inconsistent. I mean, maybe never never bet against the the power of such a such a huge state but you are giving people the incentive to hide what they do and people are very very um good at doing that some kind of i don't know i haven't thought this is it's a new question i haven't thought it through but some kind of distributed non-state based um you know peer-to-peer owned recommender system that went outside of um ebay or google reviews or whatever that just sort of could signal to people like you've done the right thing in quite a lot of scenarios it's hard for us to imagine why we would need that but a lot again you have to take yourself out the outside the uk experience out kind outside of the us experience across the world there are people who are forced to become transient who lose their homes, lose, lose all of their information 
uh, about how the economy and society works because they're traveling across the world or they're moving to a new city, whatever it is. And for those people, some kind of little, you know, score yeah. that, that would show, okay, I can deal with this person. They've, they're they going to be helpful to me. I think while we automatically think, oh, George Orwell, big brother, some of that would actually be useful if you could do it in a way that the individual owned and the individual controlled. Well, you, you know what's amazing about that is that that exact system was in place on the uh, the dark net marketplace, the Silk Road, where they were selling drugs back and forth and individual sellers had ratings on there and you could leave reviews saying, oh, this person's product was tainted, I tested it, or, you know, oh, they didn't deliver, all these kinds of things. And there was like an eBay, Amazon type atmosphere for an underground market, but then of course it got shut down. That's very interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Um, but there are other examples, and, and, and this, I guess, just sort of the other. They're not. I don't discuss in the book, but there are other ways of um, uh, another motivation, let's say, of, of thinking about things or just changing the way we think about things, because we often think about um, we have preconceived pictures of how things work, and and one. Um, that I got to reading because of the Darien Gap, actually, because it was discovered by these uh, buccaneers and essentially pirates um, uh, in the 15 and 1600s. And um, one of the interesting things about them was, and like pirates are seen as sort of fundamentally bad, they're gonna get your stuff, rob you, be violent and so on, all of which is true. But we may think that, okay, these people are unsophisticated. They're um, not going to have any kind of um, uh, feeling towards their, their fellow uh, man, woman, pirate. Actually, it turns out that pirates had this very, very finely tuned social contract with anyone on a ship. So if you went on a ship and you got injured before they, did the, they got the, the loot, uh, you would get your share. It was always divided up completely equally. Um, and more fundamentally, if you would get you got injured such that you could never go on a ship again, you would get a kind of pension, social security type payment from those people involved in in that um, that uh, that project, that 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 particular bit of pirating that was done. So it's like may sound like a bit of an out there example but if you you know you've told me about the silk road the point is that outside of the state outside of um the top-down um social cohesion social contract that we have in the us in the uk and other western democracies that that does provide a kind of um uh, safety net people are, do try and take these positive steps, either to understand their reputation, to support one another if things go wrong. And the question is, like, how, how can we make sure those things and our more like, regular policies are, are working in cohesion rather than working in tension with one another? We're, we're almost, we're basically out of time here. Um, but I, I, I gotta say, this was uh, a great book there's way more that we could we could talk about about this book. Um, 
I hope people check it out. Extreme economies. Um, it, it just, I, I read right before it, I read a book called the misbehavior of markets by uh, Mandelbrot. And uh, he's the, uh, people don't know the, the fractal guy, guy who, who came up with fractals and yeah. he talks about the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, the market is probably, you know, the best choice for, let's say the, the majority of cases that fall under the bell curve, but you go to the extremes and that's where really interesting things can happen. And it seems like where a lot of, um, a lot of movement is happening and where it's, where we're kind of headed as you point to the problems of aging, technology, et cetera. Um, anyway, that's just a long way of saying, I love your book and I'm glad I got to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thanks for the interest in the book. And yeah, maybe in future, um, if a specific thing comes up, you know, on technology or on inequality or something, we could do a real deep dive into a particular topic, if you like. Let's do it. Um, is there anywhere people can find you? Do you have any anything else that, uh, like a website or something? Yeah, you can find me. The book has got a site, which is um, extremeeconomies.com. Extreme economy is all one word. Um, or you can find my other writing, um, including the FT piece I mentioned about the hidden economy at um, Richard Davis, uh, all one word, dot io. Excellent. Richard, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Take care. Thank you to Richard Davis, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.